If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 9. We're going to continue our study in Mark's gospel. If, if you aren't aware, we have bookmarks out in this, this hallway that, that they're under these, these thin, probably two-inch by six-inch um, sheets of paper that have the schedule for the, the gospel of Mark. Lord willing, it's always put subject to change. Something could come up. Um, but but it, it's, it's for you to use so that you might know what, what we're looking at in the coming week. So you can be reading it. If you don't have a Bible reading plan, you can be preparing yourself to, to think through the scriptures so that when, when I stand up here to talk, you're not, you're not hearing the text for the first time, but you've, you've actually been thinking through it. Um, and I say that, one, I, I'm sure that, that most of you do that, but one person I know does that is, is Jean. Uh, and this morning, Jean, every morning she says, uh, here's my question coming into to the sermon so that's encouraging for me to know she's been wrestling through it. But today she said she was wondering how I was going to get you out before 2. And I told her I'm glad she recognized that because you're not. Okay, so you'll be here till 2 o'clock because of, of this passage. Um, so Mark, Mark chapter 9. Now, we're going to jump right in because it is quite a bit. But, but I, I, think, I think we will. It will help us to, to work through this. <clears throat> but, but here, let me lay out kind of the pattern of this passage. And I'm going to read the passage then we're going to start working through the passage. So, so the pattern is something that we saw a couple weeks ago. And the pattern is this. Jesus, if you remember at the end of Mark chapter 8, Jesus predicts his death. Okay? Uh, Peter makes the good confession. Then, then Jesus says, um, I'm, going to, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. Then I'm going to rise again. Disciples don't get it. Okay? So Jesus predicts his suffering. They don't get it. And then immediately after their, their failure to understand, Jesus teaches on an aspect of discipleship. So in chapter 8, it was... If you want to follow me, you're going to have to die. Okay, so, so you remember there's a paradoxical teaching where Jesus is trying to help the disciples get it. Okay, so, so there's, there's uh, passion prediction. So Jesus predicts his passion, then the disciples don't get it. Then there's teaching to clarify discipleship. Okay, that same pattern is, is on, on display in, in this Mark 9, verses 30 through 50. Okay, so, so it's a, exactly, if, if you just read those, verses 30 through 50 of chapter 9, you think, well, what in the world, how is this unified? But I think that's how it is. I think there's a, a prediction, disciples don't get it, and then Jesus teaches um, marks of discipleship. He, he tries to clarify what it means to follow him. So, so we're going to look at the marks of discipleship from this, this passage. So, so Mark chapter 9, I'm going to begin reading, you can follow along, I'm going to begin, begin reading in verse 30 of Mark 9. Mark writes, they went on from there, and they passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Verse 33, and they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for... On the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down, and he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And then he took a child, and he put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Verse 13, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and, and tried to, we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. 
For whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where, there, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So, are you ready? So, so here's, here's the outline. There, there's four kind of scenes or four sections of teaching. And so that, that's how we've broken them down. So, so we'll look at first verses 30 through 32. We have the, and, and remember, these are marks of discipleship. So, so first mark of discipleship is an understanding of the gospel or understanding the gospel in verses 30 through 32. Then we'll see the, the mark of discipleship or mark of a disciple is they're a servant of all, verses 33 through 37. Then humility, the third mark, verses 38 through 41. And then lastly, War and peace, or actually peace and war. I, I should have switched those around. I think there's a book named War and Peace. Maybe that's what it is in my mind. But we'll look at that lastly, verses 42 through 50. Okay, so let, let's begin. Let's begin with number one, verses 30 through 32. Look, look there at verse 30. And, and so th- this first mark is a, a right understanding of the gospel. And what we'll see here is the disciples don't have this. And so like, like many other times, we learn from their negative example. So we don't want to follow him Follow them here. Notice in verse 32, Jesus predicts. He says, this is what's going to happen. They're, they're going, they're passing on, the, on through Galilee. And he says, where the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. Then he's going to rise again in verse 32. But they did not understand, and they're afraid to ask him. Jesus is speaking plainly, just like at the end of chapter 8, but, but they, don't, they don't understand. They're, they're still hard-headed. They, they don't get it. They don't understand. I mean, and, and so here, they're afraid to ask him about it. I mean, before, they didn't get it. But he simply said, I'm going to be rejected, suffered, and died. And they, they didn't get it then. Well, now, he, he's added a, an additional clarifying thought that, that not only is he going to die, he's going to die at the hands of men. You see that? He will be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And so remember how their categories of the Messiah who's going to suffer, that, that didn't fit. Well, now the divine Messiah is going to be killed by human hands. That, they, they can't come close to getting that. And so it's better they decide to remain silent and confused than to speak up and have Jesus rebuke them again like what happened last time. So, so they don't ask him about it. Instead, they begin on this, on this journey to talk about something else. Um, and, and so we'll look at that in a second. But, but let's pause, and, and this first right, jumps out right at us, the, the first point of application, which is simply, what is a right understanding of the gospel? Right? If this is a mark of discipleship, if, if disciples have to have a right understanding of the gospel, I would simply ask, well, what, what is the right understanding of the gospel? For these disciples, remember, there's a lot that's going to be unfolded in the future. They've sort of got to get to Jerusalem. Okay, this, this predicted suffering is, is yet to be accomplished in the life of Jesus. But for us, we're looking in the rear view. The, these things have happened. The things that Jesus was talking about, they, they've happened. The Son of Man was delivered into the hands of men and killed by human hands. And so my question is, do you understand what, what, why that happened, what it means that that happened? Do you understand what, what happened in the suffering of 
the Messiah. The, the first thing is, is simply to say that, that God delivered his son into human hands in order to be murdered. The father sent the son. God the father sent his son to be killed by human hands. I mean, John 3.16, God sent the son. Romans 4.25, Jesus was delivered up. Or Acts 2.23, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This is a core truth of the gospel, that God sent his son. The father sent the son to be crucified. Now, some people hear that and they're appalled. How? Why? Rather than be appalled as Christians, we come to this truth and we ought to be filled with awe and wonder. God freely gave his son unto death. And we, and we think deeper, and, and, and we realize this was part of the eternal plan of the triune God who, who devised a plan of redemption, a plan of rescue, the redemption of God's enemies, of sinners, of, of us. God sent his son so that we might be saved, that, that we might not experience total death, that, that we might be with God, that, that we might have life. The death of Christ is a core truth of the gospel because the death of Christ is the only possible way for there to be good news for sinners like us. If the Father doesn't send the Son to die in our place, we are still dead in sins and trespasses. We are still enemies of God, required to do our time, to pay our penalty, to serve our sentence. If, if Jesus isn't handed over to be killed, we don't have forgiveness of sins. The gospel tells us, in our place condemned, He stood Another, the gospel tells us that the death that he died, he died to sin once for all so that we don't have to die the death that our sin deserves. And since he didn't have sin, it's clear he, he died for the sins of others. That, that's you, that's, that's me, that those, that's those who trust in him. As, as humans, we're, we're so easily tempted, aren't we, to, to look to ourselves, to look to our own goodness or, or righteousness in order to be saved. Friends, that's not gospel. That's anti-gospel. That's, that's anti-good news. If you've grown up your entire life in the church, if you've been sitting in that pew for decades, and you think that God accepts you because you do right things or because you don't do wrong things, if that's you, you've missed it completely. God does not accept you because of anything that you do or don't do. That's not the gospel. God accepts you because of what Jesus did and what Jesus did alone. This is good news that frees us. This is the gospel that saves. This is the message that causes all of us from, from the oldest to the youngest, from the greatest to the least, from the richest to the poorest, to forsake everything, to turn away from every other possible means of salvation and cast ourselves fully on the grace of God that's, that's been shown to us in Jesus Christ, to, to fall at the cross. God put his love on display in the death, in the crucifixion of his own son. And, and as God's people, we respond and we say, hallelujah, what a savior. The father sent the son. But, but the second point, just to make under, under this application about the right understanding of the gospel, is simply this, that, that God's definite plan, did you hear the language of, of Acts 2? His definite plan does not prohibit human freedom. God delivered Jesus up to die and... Jewish leaders and Roman authorities delivered Jesus up to die. Write down Acts 2.23, and you, you can go, go back and look this up. This is an important verse for this, for this discussion, but here's what, what this is, Acts chapter 2. Peter is preaching a sermon, 
And here's what he says. He said, this Jesus, who was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you hear God's action, the, the definite plan foreknowledge, you crucified and killed. Do you see? Are they responsible? You did it. You can't say, well, it's God's definite plan. I'm off the hook. No, God designed it and you did it. This is a compatibilism between God's work, God's agency, and human agency. God did it. It happened according to God's eternal plan. And evil men did it. I mean, we're crazy if we think that these, that these Jewish leaders and these Roman authorities were acting as robots carrying out God's plan. If we could see them, they, they loved murdering Jesus. The, the Jewish leaders, leaders loved seeing him crucified. They weren't robots acting apart from their will. They were doing exactly what they wanted to do. So they killed him. The Bible paints this picture of compatibility. God acts and human acts. And, and they, they both work together in the same event. There's certainly mystery, but, but I don't think there's confusion there. I mean, an example, and, and in, it, it, it's fall short, I understand, but, but a human example is, is thinking about me coming here to be your pastor. Whose plan was it? Who decided that I would come here? One answer, hopefully. God called me here. God did it. It was part of God's eternal plan that I would be here at this church beginning in January of 2017. I believe that wholeheartedly. It was God's eternal plan to have me here, to be born where I was, events that took place in my life to bring me here now. I believe that. So God did it. But, but another answer could be, you did it. Some of you say, no, 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 not me. It wasn't my fault. But after I, if you remember after I preached a trial sermon, sermon, you as an autonomous local church, you held a vote. Right? And it was up to that vote. If that vote wasn't, I don't know if it was majority or two-thirds, but if it didn't meet, well, then I wasn't coming. So, so you voted to call me to be your pastor in the same way. Maybe I shouldn't tell you this if you don't know this. You can call me to not be your pastor. Right? That, that can be your decision. But you called me here. But then another answer could be I decided. I decided. I said, yes, they've extended a call and I'm coming. And so in this one event of me coming to be your pastor, you see all these working parts and, and no one's acting against their will. It's, it's God working and you working and me working all in the same event. I, I think that's the same that, that's happening in, in the events of the crucifixion. God's at work. God is sovereign. It is his plan. Nothing happens by chance. And yet, that doesn't relieve humans from being responsible for what they do or don't do. Well, let's keep moving. So, so let's look at section 2. So after, after failing to understand Jesus' plain teaching about his coming death, the disciples, they, they, I imagine they fall back and they start talking among themselves. Look there at verse 33. So, so, so the, the journey is completed. They come back to Capernaum. And, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what, what were you guys talking about on the way? I heard you mumbling... What were you talking about? Verse 34, they kept silent for, here's what Mark tells us, they kept silent because they were arguing with one another about who was the greatest. That's what they were talking about on the way. So get back to Capernaum, maybe they're in Peter's house now at, at Jesus' home base, and Jesus asked them a question. Now let's remember, Jesus isn't asking this question out of ignorance. It's not as though Jesus doesn't know. It's not like, oh, I heard you talking, but I couldn't hear. What, what, what was it? I need to know. No, Jesus knows, and it's clear he's drawing it out because he knows. Okay, he's, he's drawing it out, asking, what are they talking about? What were you discussing? And so he asks the question, and there's silence, no answer. What were you talking about, guys? Twelve? You great men, what were you talking about on the way? 
And I mean, I thought about this. This, this scene plays out in our home numerous times. I, I, assume, I assume classrooms, workplaces all the time. That The guilty party knows their guilt, and they just say, if I just keep quiet, maybe it'll go away. And that's, as, at least that's how my kids are. Right? They just stare at you. Maybe they'll start frowning, try, trying to gain your sympathy, because they know what they're doing was wrong. That, that's the disciples here. They know they shouldn't have been talking about that. They didn't think Jesus would know, but, but he knows. And so he asked them, It's, it's natural. So they knew, just like now, that, that greatness is not to be a priority for the followers. So they, they know, they've been around Jesus and his teaching. They know they shouldn't be talking about who's the greatest. But that's what they're doing. That's, that's what they, they want power. They want recognition. They want prestige. Just like the, the builders of the Tower of Babel, if you remember back in Genesis 11. Let us build a tower. Let us make our name great. That, that's the human tendency. And that's exactly what the disciples were doing. And and I just think it's ironic. Think about this, this context. If you remember last week, what, what had happened with the disciples? They couldn't cast out a demon. They couldn't cast out a demon. They, they've, they've just been publicly humiliated by their inability. Remember the scribes were there saying, you can't do it. And they're saying, I don't know what to try. We've tried all we can. We can't do it. And so they've been publicly humiliated. And Jesus had told them it's their lack of prayerful dependence. It, it didn't work because you didn't pray. You didn't have faith. And moments later, they're arguing not, not about how to cultivate this attitude of dependence, right? That'd be a good conversation. Well, what can we do to, to, to grow in our need, our, our knowledge of our dependence on God? What, what can we do so that next time that doesn't happen? That's not what they're arguing about. Instead, they're arguing about who's the greatest. <laughs> if I'd had one more chance, I'd have gotten it. I'd have gotten that, that demon out of there. I know I would have. <laughs> you, you weren't even on top of the mountain, who are you to talk? Do you know who we, we, what we just saw up on that mountain, the transfigured Jesus? We are the greatest. And so they're arguing. They're arguing about who's the greatest. And so Jesus is going to teach them a lesson. And the lesson is that a mark of discipleship is not greatness, but servanthood. The follower of Jesus must be a servant to all. Not served by all, but a servant to all. And so Jesus says, calls them together. If anyone would be first, he must be last. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So, so Jesus turns their desire to be first upside down. This, this is a paradoxical teaching, and it's not the first time. Remember, just, just the last chapter, if you want to live, you've got to die. If you want to be first, you've got to be last. This, this kingdom, this economy that Jesus is bringing is opposite. It's not of the world. You don't, you don't pursue the things that the world does. If you want to be first, you have to be last. If you want to be great, you have to be a servant a servant of all. No, notice there's an object lesson in verse 36. So he makes that statement, then look at verse 36. He takes a child, and he puts him in the midst of them. So, so maybe this is one of Peter's kids. Who knows? Maybe it's just a, a neighborhood kid that calls in off the street. Whoever, there's a little child that he brings and puts in the middle of them as they're having this discussion. And he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, here's what Jesus isn't doing. Now, a lot of times we can read that and we can assume, oh, he's just saying have, have childlike faith. Be like that child. Now, now that happens at another, in another place, but that's not what's happening here. Right? The child is not to be their example. Do you see that? He, he's not saying be like the child. Rather, this child is to be an object lesson for their service. You're to serve those like this child. This, the child's to be the object of your service. One like this child. One commentator, Mark Strauss, says, In the first century culture, children were viewed as insignificant and having no social status. 
Welcoming a little child meant breaking social norms. It meant lowering oneself to accept another of lower status and thereby risking one's own position of power and prestige. And so he's calling them, receive those like the children, those of lower status, those who can't offer you anything. Jesus is exposing the disciples' backwards view of power and greatness. It's, it's not ultimately, he's telling the disciples, about casting demons out and flexing your spiritual muscles to show your power. It's not about exalting yourself through your spiritual gifts. It's not about you. Rather, it's about showing concern for the least. It's about welcoming the insignificant. It's about lowering yourself and being a servant to all, regardless of status. You see, if the disciples are driven by a desire to be great, there's, there's no way they'd care about a little child. I mean, what, what can a child offer in return in terms of status and power? Nothing. That's exactly why Jesus says, receive ones like this, because it's not about growing upward. And so Jesus is teaching them with this object lesson. His followers must be servants and servants of all. And then he continues, verse 37, whoever receives one receives me, and re- receives one in my name receives not me, but him who sent me. And so for these disciples, receiving the helpless, serving those who can't pay back, caring for those who don't offer a rung up the power ladder, ladder is actually the way to climb the power ladder. That's the way to be great, is to lower yourself and help those who can't help you, who don't benefit you. Receiving one like a child, receiving someone who doesn't offer you anything, is actually serving Jesus himself. Do you see that? Whoever receives one, in my name, receives me, and whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. It's actually serving and caring for Jesus and the one who sent him. And so understanding that changes the way you think about the helpless and insignificant, because it's not about them, it's about serving the Lord through serving them. In fact, changing the way that you think about the insignificant, by it changes the way by eliminating the category altogether. There's no such thing as insignificant in the kingdom, right? All are worthy of care and service. Jesus' point is that true servant leadership flips social hierarchy on its head. True servant leadership serves those of lower status in the eyes of the world. So Jesus, the the second mark of discipleship is being a servant of all. Next, look look at number three, verses 38 through 41. John said to him, so John, John pipes up now, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. So, so immediately after, after this object lesson about being a servant of all, John pipes up and says this. Why, why does he say this now? I mean, it seems a little bit disconnected. How, how does this relate? How, how do we think about this? So, so the disciples have just been told, so fo- follow me, they've just been told that they must be servants of all. They've just been told they must lower themselves and, and receive others. And so now John brings up, brings up an issue of someone who they did not receive. They're just told you've got to receive ones like the children. Well, John says, okay, okay, well, we didn't receive this kind. We're right in not receiving them, right? I mean, I think that's the issue. I think, I think John brings this issue up to justify his decision not to receive one because he tried to oppose them, tried to stop them. I know you're telling us to receive others, but, but we tried to stop one man, Jesus, because he was casting out demons, and he wasn't even one of us. He wasn't even following us. We're, we're not supposed to receive and serve him, are we? He's our opponent, right? He's not with us. Notice how Jesus responds, verse 39. Don't stop him. Don't, you were wrong. Don't stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. In other words, when when someone is successfully casting out demons in my name, 
they're, they're going to be one of us. They aren't going to cast out demons in my name and then, and then immediately work against the mission that I came to accomplish. I mean, that's what he's saying. The default is if they're doing effective ministry in my name, you, it's safe to assume they're on my team. Don't stop them. Don't stop them. They're not against us. They're for us. Don't prevent or obstruct their work. So Jesus says you, you, don't, you don't do that. But then second, notice what Jesus says there in verse 41. For truly I say to you, Again, this seems disconnected. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Now, now why, why does Jesus bring this up after that? Remember, he's just said in verse 40, okay, the one who is not against us is for us. So, so he said, these, these guys are on our team. The guy that was casting out demons in my name, he's on our team. And he wanted the disciples to know, okay, that that, that, that man was on their team, but, but it's more than just that man. Anyone who does as little of a thing as give you a cup of cold water, they're on our team also. I mean, that, that, that's his point. It's not just about the miraculous display. It's not just about those casting out demons in my name. Instead, if someone just gives you a cup of water, they're going to be rewarded, which means they're serving the Lord and giving you a cup of water, as menial of a task as that seems. In both cases, whether casting out a demon or giving a cup of water to a disciple, the work is being done for the sake of the kingdom. The exorcist and the one giving water are both on the same team as the 12. Don't miss it. That's the point. They're on your team, disciples. Get off of your mountain. It's not just you 12. This team is much bigger than you think. In fact, think about it. They're going to be all alone without Jesus. Do they really think they can carry on the mission without others? Humility marks the disciple of Christ. I mean, these disciples here, they have a narrow perspective as to the scope of, of ministries and ministers when it comes to the kingdom. They think that it's, it's all about them. And there's a pride dwelling in the disciples that Jesus cannot let go unaddressed. And so that's what he does. I think from verses 33 through 41, he's, he's, he's arguing, he's, he's combating the pride of disciples, which let, let's stop here and let's make a point of application, which is simply this. Pride is an enemy of every disciple. Pride is your, if you're a follower of Christ, pride is your enemy. Your pride is your enemy. In, in both verses 33 through 37 and 38 through 41, the issue of pride of the disciples, that, that's the issue. The issue is the pride of the disciples. And so Jesus says true disciples are marked by service and by humility, by recognizing that it's bigger than them. And in both cases, the, the main issue is how you relate to others on the team. I mean, that, that, that's it, how they relate. They're arguing with one another. So that's not how you relate to one another, but it's also others outside of your circle. How you relate to them is at stake. And so the solution, the way to cultivate both of these, is to recognize that the relationship of other disciples in Christ himself. There's a relationship there. There's a direct connection. And so when, when you... When we're tempted to neglect loving or serving another disciple, as we're called to do, if that's a mark of discipleship, when we're tempted to neglect that, Jesus says, to love and to serve them is to love and to serve me. And so we say, why, why wouldn't I do this? This is a chance to serve the Lord himself. Of course I'm going to serve others who are followers of Christ. And secondly, when we're tempted to be jealous or envious of others who are serving the Lord, others who are casting out demons, well, well we couldn't do it, and he can. He's got to stop. It's not fair. Why did he get that gift? Why, why could he do that? When we're tempted to be jealous or envious of others who serve differently or, or like us, Jesus says to think rightly about them is to recognize that those who are not against me are for me. 
why would I be envious of another flourishing ministry? Right? God, grow the church in Hampton and Fox Hill and, and use us if you want, but it doesn't matter to us. Use Providence, use Langley, use whoever you want, but, but our concern is for the kingdom here in this area. True disciples recognize God works in many different forms and ways and ministries and even, dare I say, denominations. Let us rejoice in any and every type of gospel ministry that's taking place under the name and authority of Christ. That should be our default, which for me, that, that's not my default. I'm cynical. I'm skeptical. Pff, they're not, pff, they're not a, that's not a healthy church. How could God use them? And that's me. That's wrong. This, says the disciple of Christ's default, is praise God. Now, if they give evidence that they're not for Christ, then, then we change our minds. Okay, I'm not saying we, anyone who claims to know Christ, we say, all right, no discernment required. They claimed it, we're good. Right? There are many who claim the name who are, who are not ministry, but our default should be praise the Lord. Which leads to a final section. Let's look at the last section, verses 42 through 50. We have peace and war, or war and peace. Both of these are marks of the disciple. In this last section, Jesus continues the theme of, of how disciples are to relate to one another. So that's the peace. Okay, there, we'll see as he ends, there's peace with one another. But he also adds another dimension. And that's how disciples are relate, to relate to themselves. There's this inner relating that's, that's going to happen. And the point is that disciples are to be at war, not with those outside, but the war that takes place in the disciple is inside. Do You see, our, our default is, I'm going to make war with those other and I'm going to be at peace with myself. That's our default. Where G, well, Jesus here flips that. He says, the war is to be internal in your own sin, not, not be focused on others. In fact, when you deal with others, be at peace with them. If you want to fight, if you want to war, if you want to get angry, don't look outside. Look inside. Your enemy is within. So let, let's look at how Jesus brings those two out. Verse 42. Disciples are to live at peace with one another. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So whereas before he talks about the benefits of receiving those like children, I don't think it's limited to children. I think it's children are representative of this whole category of people that we're to serve. And so he says, whoever causes one of these to sin, instead of the reward, he talks about the dangers of causing them to sin. Living at peace with one another is, is being careful being diligent not to cause others to stumble or to sin, to, to lead them away from sin, away from stumbling, away from forsaking the faith. Jesus said it would be better for, for someone to be drowned in the sea with a weight tied around the neck and just thrown over the, over the bridge. I mean, it's graphic language, isn't it? It'd be better for that to happen than to lead a little one to sin. Disciples make a point not to cause other disciples to to sin. These disciples, as, as Jesus is preparing to leave, they were going to be his representatives. Everyone was going to look to them. They had great responsibility, and they were to carefully consider others, which if, if you know the story, Peter doesn't do a good job of that. Remember in Galatians, the, this, this whole Judaizer issue, when, when, when people come, he says, oh, I can't treat them. I can't treat them. I'm, I'm, I'm fellowshipping with the Gentiles, but then others come, and I, whoa, 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 I can't. I, you're unclean. Right? It took a while for Peter to get this. But he's to, to not cause others to sin. And he continues, not only are you not to lead others into sin, he continues in verse 43, they're to wage war against sin in their own lives. So notice there in this section, which it's also in the, the Sermon on the Mount, 
But notice he, he, he labels or he, he separates three body parts to wage war against. Do you see that? Verse 43, he says, if your hand causes you to sin. Verse 45, if your foot causes you to sin. Verse 47, if your eye causes you to sin. And in each case, in each body part case, the action is to be taken against the source of sin. So if it causes you to sin, here's what you're to do. You're to cut it off or tear it out. You're to eliminate it. Get rid of it. Action is to be taken place against the source of sin. And notice the reasoning behind cutting it off or or tearing it out. It's better to live with one hand than to go to hell with two. It's better to live with one foot than to go to hell with two. It's better to live with one eye than to go to hell with two. Do you see the logic? Keeping a hand isn't worth going to hell over. And so Jesus is saying, if this hand causes you to sin, get rid of it, fight it, eliminate it, do whatever it takes, no holds barred. Deal with it, eliminate it. The the logic is simple, a failure to deal with it leads you straight to hell, right? Yeah, keep both hands, don't don't fight your sin, you're going straight to hell if, if that's the case, right? It's straightforward. And notice all of this is from within. There's nothing outside here that's sending anyone to hell. It's, it's, it's my own desires. It's my own eyes and my hands and my feet. It's not someone else. I can't blame them. It's, it's all internal. And heaven and hell are at stake. Now, now, let me make a critical clarification here. This is hyperbole. It's hyperbole. Jesus is using this language, this exaggerated language, to shock his hearers. He doesn't intend for his disciples to pull out their, their, their swords and start cutting off their hands. That's not the right application of this. He doesn't want them, want them leaving and, and plucking out their eyes. But he does intend for them to recognize the importance that they must place on fighting sin. Right? It's important. There, there's nothing that you can do that's too drastic when it comes to fighting sin. There's no such thing as too drastic a measure. That's his point. Do whatever it takes, even if you have to walk around the rest of your life with one foot. If you have eliminated a source of sin, it's all worth it. I think Jesus uses hands and feet and eyes. It's just this general, generalization. Your, your hands tend to grab things that, that you, don't, you don't need, that you shouldn't grab. Or your feet take you places that you shouldn't go. And your eyes look at things that you shouldn't see. And so Jesus is, is just generalizing sin in general. You, you have to wage war against sin in general. And he doesn't leave room for compromise. Disciples must be at war with sin. Which, let me, here's, here's a clear point of application. Disciples must take their own sin seriously. If you're a follower of Christ, you ought to take your own sin seriously. You're forgiven, yes and amen, paid for by the blood of Christ, but you still have to work out the sin issues. You still fight sin because as long as you're here in the flesh, there's a war going on between spirit and flesh. And if you, if you just coast, if you just default, guess what? The Spirit's going to lose. You can't drift into spiritual health. You can't drift in this war with sin. So you must take, I must take our sin seriously. I mean, I, I don't think we can explain away the clear meaning of this passage. A failure for someone to deal with their own sin is evidence that, that this person's not a Christian. It's as simple as that. A failure to combat and fight sin, a failure to cut off hand or foot or I, is evidence that you're headed straight for hell. I mean, hear me. This is Jesus talking. 
Indifference towards sin is a very, very dangerous thing. Indifference towards sin is a very, very dangerous thing. If, if you're here this morning, you're, you're caught in sin and you're struggling to fight sin, that's one thing. That is one thing. Be encouraged at your desire to fight. Maybe you feel like you're just, you're just swinging at the air, not accomplishing anything. The fact that you're swinging, the fact that you want to swing is evidence of grace, so be encouraged at that. But if you're caught in sin, if you're living in sin and you don't care, if you're living in sin and couldn't care less, that is a totally different issue. If, if I were you, I would be very afraid. I mean, this is a warning from Jesus himself. People who are indifferent towards their own sin are people who go to hell with two hands and two feet and two eyes. If you're a follower of Christ, know your own sin. Take it seriously. Fight it. Fight it. God is gracious. God will give you victory. Just keep fighting. Keep trusting. Keep involving others in your battle. But fight it. Fight it. Fight it. Well, as we close, look, look at the last two verses. I was hoping we'd be out of time. I wouldn't have to deal with these because honestly, these are the most confusing verses that, that we've come to in Mark. So let me, give you, let me give you my effort at trying to explain them. As we look at them, let, let's remember the context. Jesus talking to his disciples, he's just laid before them the consequences of not dealing with sin, right? So if you don't deal with sin, the consequence is eternal torment, okay, fire. Okay, I think that's the theme that, that transitions here, fire. There's eternal fire that awaits those who don't deal with their sin. Okay? So now he turns the image and, and he's going to use fire, but it's a different type of fire. Okay? But the fire is what connects what he's about to say with what he just said. Now he's going to describe fire in a totally different manner. In verses 49 and 50, it's not the consuming fire of hell, but rather it's the purifying fire that every disciple must go through. So verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. I think he's talking again to the disciples. Every follower will be salted with fire. This is the fire that, that salts or the fire that, that purifies. And so I think Jesus in verse 49 is saying every disciple will be, will be purified, will, will be salted with fire, which is language reminiscent in Deuteronomy, I think it's 2 or 12, but, but it's Old Testament sacrifices that, that were salted with fire. And so I think Jesus' point is that true disciples are salted with fire because they are, they are sacrifices. Your life is to be viewed as a sacrifice, as, as a sacrifice dedicated to and being offered to the Lord. It's, that's a requirement of discipleship, to, to lay down your life, to sacrifice, which fits the context of serving others, of, of humility, of not arguing for your own place. And so the warning in verse 50 is that when disciples fail to live lives of sacrifice, lives of offering to the Lord, these disciples are no longer serving their purpose as true disciples. They're not, they're not salty anymore. They're not, they're not being purified. They're not being salted with fire. They're not true disciples, which ties everything, at least in my mind, together, that true disciples live lives of sacrifices. They're, they're servants of all. They're marked by humility. They don't think too highly of themselves. They're careful not to cause others to sin, and they wage war against their own sin. And all these marks of discipleship evidence that, that the disciple is living his or her life for the Lord and not for themselves. It's, it's a life of sacrifice. And so the final command, the final call that Jesus gives to his disciples at the end of verse 50 is be at peace with one another. Be at peace. How you relate to one another indicates if you're a true disciple. This is how you know if you have salt in yourself or not. Are you living at peace with one another? 
True disciples' lives, relationships are marked by peace. And so Jesus doesn't let this opportunity pass for him to teach his disciples that relational peace is a non-negotiable for his followers. Remember at the beginning, there was anything but peace among the disciples. They were arguing about who is the greatest. So Jesus has used this to tell them peace marks the life of discipleship, which is what we ought to walk away from here remembering. Peace ought to characterize the relationships between all Christians, especially in this body. Let's pray. Father, we pray, Father, I pray that, that you would grant us here peace with one another. Among members of this local body, would you grant us peace with one another? Help us to live at peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ, both here in our own body, but also in those with those in our city and state and nation. We pray that your people, the body of Christ, would, would be a body marked by peace. Would that be true of us? And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.